Our second reading this evening is from Revelation chapter 12. The woman and the dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan thrown down to earth. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And so the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, who was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And they heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she, be, she is to be nourished, for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. I've got a mic. I'm all good. Uh, thank you very much. Very tall. Very tall, isn't it? Uh, I just want to apologize. Um, there is a, a buzzing light up here. Uh, so if you hear some strange rattle, uh, especially if you're listening on the podcast, uh, that's what's going on. Uh, you're very welcome to Uni Church. Uh, my name is also Peter, uh, one of the pastors here. I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll get stuck in. Father, we thank you for even the difficult parts of Scripture, how they teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness. Lord, we pray 
that you would do all of these things for us now through your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, we've been working our way through this really strange book of Revelation uh, since September, really. And uh, we're now in chapter 12. Uh, we're not going to cover absolutely everything in this passage, but hopefully give you a bit of a shape uh, of what's going on. And that'll help for our members who are in growth groups. Uh, hopefully that'll be especially helpful for you. I'm going to begin by telling you about a woman named Esther. Esther was not the name given to her at birth. Esther was born Kamar Zia in India on the 14th of October, 1929. Kamar was one of seven children, and her parents were both Muslims. Despite having Muslim parents, Kamar attended a Christian school in India. And after seeing the genuine faith of her teachers, she began to read the Bible for herself. And she came across that very famous passage, Isaiah 53, that passage written 500 years before Jesus that predicts in remarkable detail his death to pay for the sins of his people. And Kamar became a Christian. Uh, she moved from India to the newly formed Pakistan. I'm not totally clear on all the politics, but that happened in the uh, 30s and 40s. And whenever she found out that she, was, uh, she had an arranged marriage ahead of her, a marriage to a Muslim man, she ran away from home. She found herself working in a Pakistani orphanage, and she changed her name to Esther John. Her family pursued her, uh, both literally and they kept writing to her, uh, to try and convince her to return and to marry the man that they had chosen for her. And so she fled from Pakistan back into India. And there she worked in a hospital uh, set up by Christians. After working in the hospital uh, for a while, she entered a Bible college and trained to be a missionary. And she traveled throughout India telling people about Jesus. On the 2nd of February, 1960, at the age of 31, Esther was found brutally murdered in her bed. She was murdered for converting to Christianity and for telling people about Jesus. Esther, like many people before her and many people since, died for following the Lord Jesus. As Christians, and even as you're here and you're not a Christian, we have to ask ourselves, why does this happen? Why does God allow this to happen? As we've been studying Revelation, we've been given a God's eye view of history. John, the author, was lifted up into heaven and shown what all of history looks like from God's perspective. And here in chapter 12, God, John gives us another overview of Christian history from, from the birth of Jesus uh, until, well, today and beyond. Um, we've had a number of these overviews so far. There were the seven seals, if you remember that. They spoke particularly of human suffering, war and famine, sickness and death. Then there were the seven trumpets, which spoke particularly of natural and supernatural suffering, both natural disasters and the demonic oppression of those who haven't yet trusted 
in Jesus. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to see another overview of history, the seven bowls being poured out. So, Revelation is full of these cycles of human history. This evening, John's overview particularly deals with the supernatural oppression of those who follow Jesus. We've seen this in Revelation before. We're going to see a lot more of it in the weeks to come. But Revelation is very clear. Indeed, the whole Bible is really clear that there is a supernatural realm. There are angels and demons. Satan, the devil, is real. And what we find in this chapter especially is an insight into the person and the motivation of Satan. John tells us this story of Christian history uh, using two characters, primarily two characters. There's the woman and the dragon. So, we'll think about the woman first. Verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, what on earth is going on here? Well, we've said before that Revelation is full of Old Testament imagery. Lots of people think of Revelation as being simply about the future, and there's definite elements of the future in Revelation, but in order to understand Revelation, we don't need to look at what's happening now. We don't need to look at what might happen in the future, not that we can tell what's going on in the future. We need to look back. In order to understand Revelation, we need to look back into the Old Testament. Who is this woman? Who is her child? Well, the child part's actually pretty straightforward. It's Jesus. How do we know it's Jesus? Well, because of the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible, a physical Bible, keep your finger in Revelation 12 and turn back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm's the biggest book in the Bible. If you just open up your Bible in the middle, you'll probably hit a Psalm of some sort and then go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a really, really important psalm for understanding the whole New Testament. It's one that's worth sort of going back to again and again, uh, even committing to memory uh, if you're able to. Psalm chapter 2. Verse 1 and 2 say this, "'Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain?' The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, Psalm 2 introduces us to two characters as well. There's God, the, the Lord, and then there's God's king, his anointed one. And Psalm 2 says that the nations rage against both the Lord and against his anointed. Now, you probably know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. It's not written in English. And in Hebrew, the word that's translated anointed for us 
is the word Mashiach, or if you want to say it in English, Messiah. The word Messiah simply means the anointed one. And so, Psalm 2 is about the Lord and His Messiah. Well, what else does this psalm tell us about the Messiah? Well, look down at verse 7. At this, at this point, the, the king himself is speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So, Psalm 2 tells us about this Messiah who will be called God's Son, and that He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, does that sound familiar? We'll look at verse 5. Flip back to Revelation 5, verse 12. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. This child that's born is the Messiah. It is the Lord Jesus. What we have here in Revelation 12 verse 5 is probably the shortest summary of the life of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus in 28 words, His birth to His ascension of the Messiah, the Christ. So, if the baby is Jesus, well, then who is the woman that John is talking about? Well, what some people think, and, you know, if you're going to, maybe the most obvious answer is Mary, Jesus' mother, right? It must be Mary. I don't think so. It's almost certainly not Mary for, for a number of reasons. Because well, the main reason is that this woman represents something even bigger than Mary. This woman represents the whole people of God. Particularly, in, at this part of the story, the people of God before Jesus comes, the people of Israel. How do we know that? Well, first of all, she is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and has 12 stars on her head. These aren't just sort of off-the-hand comments about this woman's appearance. The 12 stars, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that 12 is a significant number, symbolizes the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So, you've got these 12 stars, and then you've got this mention of the sun and the moon. What's all that about? Well, you might remember, if you've sort of grown up in Christian circles, you might remember the story of Joseph. Before he gets his technicolor dream coat, before he goes to Egypt, Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, his father is the sun, his mum is the moon, and his 11 brothers are 11 stars that worship him. So, this is a very clear Old Testament reference back to that first family of Israel. This woman represents the people of God, the Old Testament people before Jesus was born. But she also represents the people of God after Jesus was born. Look at verse 17. 
the dragon became furious with the woman and went down to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, if this woman was Mary, then the offspring that the dragon is raging against would be the natural brothers and sisters of Jesus. And Jesus had brothers and sisters. The New Testament's really clear about that. So, that could be who John's talking about, but it would be really strange, wouldn't it, for him to hone in on these family, these siblings of Jesus, who we, we know we, the New Testament doesn't really tell us anything else about. It wouldn't fit with the sort of global aspect of Revelation. And it's really, really clear who these offspring are, isn't it? That's what John tells us. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So, this woman has two children, uh, two or two sets of offspring. There is the son who is uh, carried up into heaven, who rules the earth, who rules the nations with a rod of iron. The other offspring of this woman is Christians. And that actually fits really well with what we see throughout the New Testament. Christians are called the siblings the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Jesus himself says that. The author of Hebrews makes that argument, Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to look that up. So, this woman represents the people of God. And throughout the Bible, there's only one people of God. In the Old Testament, it's particularly Jews, the Israelites. But after the coming of Christ, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, us, we are grafted into the people of God. And that's who this woman is represents the people of God. So, that's who the woman is. What about the second character, the great red dragon? Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, who is this dragon? Well, that's, even, that's a bit easier than the woman because John tells us explicitly, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The dragon is Satan, the devil. Now, we don't talk much uh, about Satan uh, in our sort of church life, I don't think. We've talked a little bit about him uh, in our morning service because we've been going through Thessalonians and there's a bit of that in there. The word Satan, uh, the name Satan means enemy. He is the enemy of God. And as we see, he's the enemy of God's people. What do we learn about Satan? Well, verse 3, he has seven heads seven crowns, and ten horns. How does that work? Did he have one horn on each head, and then sort of three horns on one head? That, that actually adds up to… Well, that's only nine, isn't it? There need to be four on one. And then, that's not the point here. These horns, these crowns, they all tell us something about this dragon. So, again, don't worry about too much about the mechanics of it all. In Daniel chapter 7, again, back in the Old Testament… Daniel has this vision of a demonic beast with ten 
horns. So clearly, that's what John is picking up on. He's using Daniel's imagery. What about the seven heads and the seven crowns? Well, again, if you've been with us, you'll know that in Revelation, the number seven means whole, complete, total. This dragon has seven heads and seven crowns. What does that tell us? He is not to be messed with. He has power. He has authority. He's not to be trifled with. You might remember the story of Jesus uh, when He's tempted in the wilderness, and Satan says to Him in that final temptation, bow down to Me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Satan wasn't entirely lying. Satan has authority. Throughout Revelation, and we'll see more of this next week, John paints a picture of all worldly kingdoms as having a demonic edge to them, all of them open, at least, to the influence and the use of Satan to oppress the people of God. In John's day, this would have made total sense to his readers because Rome was in control. Rome, the empire, that great empire based around the city of Rome, nestled among seven hills, which is interesting. We'll think that those seven hills will appear again in Revelation. This city, this empire that was beginning to crack down on the worship of Jesus. This empire that insisted that all of its inhabitants bow the knee to Caesar as God. This global force, nothing like it in all of history, that demanded total obedience, total conformity. You could not step out of line. You had to, you had to say the Roman words. You had to think like a Roman. You had to be a Roman. I said earlier that the Bible takes very seriously the presence of an evil, of an unseen realm. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is an evil supernatural presence in this universe. Our instinct is to deny that or to downplay that. Again, I said this a few weeks ago in, in our morning service, but you know, that line from the usual suspects, absolutely true. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The Bible takes as very real the presence of an unseen evil realm. The Christians who received this letter of Revelation, they would have felt that pressure. They would have felt Satan breathing down their necks from the Romans. And John's just confirming for them that this oppression isn't simply natural. 
there's a supernatural edge to it too. Whenever we read the Bible, sometimes when we particularly look at the ministry of Jesus, and you know, Jesus is just casting out demons left, right, and center, and we don't really see that much these days, and some people just explain that away as, you know, a, a poor understanding of mental illness or, or something like that. But while there are sort of specific instances of clear demonic activity, the message of the Bible is that Satan works in other ways too. Satan works primarily against God and against His people. The Christians uh, who John is writing to would have felt that particularly heavily as Rome was cracking down. But John here is writing to remind them that this is the way it has always been. The dragon has always been on the prowl. This is what the Lord Jesus Himself faced. Look at verse 4, second half of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What we have here in Revelation uh, 12, verse 4, this is the Christmas story. I've actually heard a Christmas sermon uh, on this very passage a couple of years ago. Remember the Christmas story? Do you remember Herod ordering the slaughter of every baby boy in Bethlehem in order to kill the promised king? There is the dragon using earthly power and authority in an attempt to thwart God's plans. It happened in the life of Jesus. It also happens to Christians. Have a look at verse 14. The woman was given two wings, the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What's going on here? John is describing the persecution of Christians. But what's really interesting is that he does it using Exodus language. And this bit's a little bit complicated, so here's the best way I've, I've heard it described. We all know what a meme is, don't we? We all love a meme. In our staff team, people, I've, I've heard them refer to each other as a meme. You're such a meme. I don't really understand what that means uh, because I'm old. But we do know what memes are, don't we? They're images that convey an idea. Maybe there's some really good memers here. I know there'll be people in this room that have folders full of memes just, just for that right occasion. Just so, uh, talk to Joel Davison especially. Um, <laughs> memes are often stupid. Uh, they're often very funny. Everyone loves a good meme. Uh, but the original uh, meaning of the word meme is a sort of storied pattern that is played out. Richard Dawkins actually coined the term, would you believe? We know what a meme is. It, it's an image. It's often connected to you know, a movie or a TV show. And the, the sentiment, the idea of that 
scene is then applied to another scene. We're saying, oh, this is like this. Revelation is full of memes, of images, stories, and patterns that repeat themselves. You might know the word meme actually comes from the word gene because genes repeat themselves. So, John here is using some Exodus memes to describe the dragon and the woman. First meme he uses is uh, of the woman, the people of God, being saved on eagles' wings into the wilderness. Again, if, you, you know, if you're a meme expert, if you're an Old Testament meme expert, you'll know this is exactly what God says of the Israelites when He rescues them from slavery. He speaks of the dragon as the great serpent. That is both a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. We'll think about that in a second. But throughout the Old Testament, in a number of places, when people talk about the Exodus, Pharaoh is referred to as a serpent. And then, of course, the image of water attempting to sweep away the people of God. Well, that's clearly Exodus imagery. That's an Exodus meme. What's the point of all these memes? Well, it shows two things. The first thing it shows is that things have always been this way. That's what memes do, isn't it? You know, like an old idea to a new situation. Things have always been this way. Ever since the fall, ever since Eden, the serpent has been attacking the people of God. The Eden story, the Exodus story, the life of Jesus, these are all the same story being replayed in different ways ways. The same story played out again and again and again. So, John is saying to the Christians in these countries in modern-day Turkey, this is the way it's always been. Don't be discouraged. There's nothing new here. The second thing that it shows us, all these Exodus images, is that although Satan is real, Although Satan has real power, that power is limited because nothing he does goes beyond the control of God. He tries to devour the child, but the child is, ascends into heaven and he is cast down. He, tries, uh, he is trying to devour the offspring of the woman. But again, none of this is beyond the control of God. Satan has actually been defeated. Satan is not another God in the way that God is a God. God is the creator. He made everything including Satan. Satan is God's opponent, but he is not his equal. And the Christian, despite satanic opposition, satanic suffering, has absolute certainty of the final outcome, because Satan has already been defeated. Look at verse 10. 
I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them night and day before God. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the words of his, their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. You see what he's saying? Satan has been defeated. He was defeated finally at the cross. The Christian knows that they will conquer use that revelation term. The Christian will conquer in Christ, but be careful. Because you see, although Satan has been defeated, he is mortally wounded, but he is still dangerous. Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. This verse makes me think of, do you know that scene in uh, The Deathly Hallows? I think it's part two, the movie version anyway. Do you remember whenever Harry's been like destroying the Horcruxes? And uh, I think it's whenever he's, he's, it's whenever he's dropped into the sea from the dragon, certainly in the movie version. I can't remember where it is in the books. And he, he sort of has that vision into Voldemort's head. And he says, Voldemort is weakened because we've been destroying these Horcruxes but that makes him more dangerous, not less. Satan knows his time is short. He is a mortally wounded dragon, but a dragon nonetheless. So there's a warning here. There's an encouragement to the Christian. The final outcome has been decided, but beware. Satan is on the move. If you were at our morning service a few weeks back, we thought a little bit about this, about how Satan works against the church. Sometimes Satan works in really big, obvious, dramatic ways. The Christians in Revelation were beginning to see that, you know, state oppression of Christians, martyrdom, the years surrounding the writing of Revelation were filled with obvious satanic opposition. John, the guy who wrote this, was writing it on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea after having been boiled alive in a pot of oil for being a Christian. He miraculously survived. Peter, the apostle, was probably already dead at this point, having been crucified upside down by Emperor Nero. Paul the Apostle, beheaded under Emperor Nero, and countless Christians thrown to the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild animals. Satan is a dragon. He's big. He does big, scary things. Esther John, brutally murdered in her sleep. Satan's also a serpent, and sometimes his work is much more subtle. He is both the great red dragon and the serpent 
of the garden, sometimes waging his war through violence, and sometimes through lies. What was the first thing? What's the first thing Satan says in the Bible? What does he say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Sometimes Satan's really, really obvious. Sometimes he's really, really subtle. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Did he really say you have to forgive your enemies? Did he really say that you have to repent of your sins? Did he really say that we're saved by faith alone? Did he really say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Did he really say that sex was only for marriage? Did he really say that marriage is only between one man and one woman? Sometimes Satan is really, really subtle. Sometimes Satan works to block fellowship between believers. We saw that in our morning congregation a few weeks back. Paul says that Satan blocked him from visiting the Thessalonians. What a small, seemingly insignificant thing for Satan to be worried about. One man's visit to a small church in the south coast of Greece. But Satan doesn't want Christians meeting together. He doesn't want them encouraging each other. He doesn't want them listening to the Word of God, submitting to its authority. Peter, the apostle, before he died, wrote that Satan is prowling around like a lion, looking for someone to devour. We might think that's a reference to Satan's big, violent opposition of God's people. But Peter actually says those words in the middle of a group of verses all about humility, pride. Satan wants us to be proud, to put our needs, our preferences, our desires above others. Sometimes Satan is really, really subtle, blocking fellowship, promoting pride, uh, discouraging humility. So Christians, we need to watch out. I need to watch out. You need to watch out. Satan is waging war against the offspring of the woman. We need to be really careful, but we do not need to despair, because that has always been the way of things. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know Genesis 3, the fall, and God comes in and graciously offers a solution. He promises that He will fix the problem. He speaks of the offspring of the woman, same language used here and the offspring of the serpent being at war with each other. The serpent will bruise the the seed of the woman's heel, but he will crush its head. That is, of course, in the first instance, a reference to the Lord Jesus and his work of defeating Satan, crushing 
his head. But the Christian has the privilege of joining Jesus in that work of serpent crushing. That was the story in Genesis 3. It's the story in Revelation. And it's how Paul closes his letter to the Romans. Listen to these words. Quite remarkable. Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The Christian needs to be really careful, but they can be confident because in Christ they have the victory. While we are on the earth, we need to watch out. But when we reach the heavens, we can rejoice because we know that the dragon has been slain, the serpent has been crushed. And that this has all been done, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb. We don't need to fear, but we need to be careful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though the great dragon tried to eat the child, that the Lord Jesus was protected so that he could give his life as a ransom for many, that his blood would save us and would defeat that ancient dragon. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the schemes of the devil. We pray that you would protect us from the desires of the flesh and the influence of the world. Lord, help us uh, to take these warnings seriously. Help us to not give Satan a foothold, to not listen to his lies, to not, uh, to please protect us, Lord, from his attacks. Help us to remain faithful uh, to your word and to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.